Hey, this is Zac Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Because he has a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. Woohoo! Monday, October 1st, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a 16-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And I'm Lisa Bernhard, a 17-year young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It's not okay. That's... Damn you! It's not not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show, the first in a series of shows in conjunction with Komen's Multicultural Advisory Council. We're very excited about this. Tonight's topic is breast cancer in African American and Latin American women. Joining us, Tarsha White-Jones. She's a nurse, teacher, Ph.D. student, cancer researcher, uh, young uh, a cancer researcher of young adult African-American breast cancer patients, and she is a member of Coleman's Multicultural Advisory Council. Also joining us, Pamela Cromwell. She's a young adult survivor of breast cancer and the founder of Pink for Pam. Milette Lopez, young adult breast cancer survivor, founder of IHadCancer.com and a principal at Squeaky Media. And kicking it off in the spotlight, Barbara Musser, founder and CEO of Sexy After Cancer. Okay, the Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, online at stupidcancer.org. We are the largest support community for the young adult cancer movement, so welcome aboard another fungible and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure and survivorship is all that matters. And <laughs> that's me, that's my cue, Matthew. A stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we broadcast live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in New York City. All righty. It is October. What does that mean? That means that your job is to trip me up on the air. <laughs> my, as I watch, my job every month. Yes, it is. This is true. Hi, yeah. Lisa. Hi, Matthew. How are you? I'm great. How you are you? Look, you look fantastic. Thank you very much. All dolled up from your rotor job this morning. Yeah. Well, I actually... Slipped on the denim shirt to come here tonight. Okay. I had something pink and shiny on. Yeah. 
Very nice. Is it what? Is it leather? <laughs> Kenny has no idea. It's like that line from. Uh, it's textile. Something. I'll date myself. It's like that line from Coming to America. Velvet. What is that? Velvet. It's very dark and yes. It's Hi, dark Kenny. And... Hello. How's my ginger boy? Uh, I'm sorry. How you doing? I am fabulous. Yes. What, what are you wearing? This is, this is leather. Yeah. This is a leather hoodie. He's wearing a hoodie. <laughs> leather hoodie. He's wearing his Zuckerberg hoodie. Yes, yeah. exactly. The perks of uh, my unjob. Kind yes. of like our ungala. Yes, your unjob, exactly. Well, we got our two interns here in the back. They're waving on the radio. Matt Beckett and uh, Tame and Kim. Hey, guys. You shout hello? Give us a big shout that reaches. Oh, Matt, that was weak. That was weak, Beckett. Matty Beak. Okay, that was close. Anyang Haseo. Ooh, Kenny with the Korean. Yes. Very nice. Thank you. Congratulations. How about Matt Beckett has another hoodie on? It says, You're a lifeguard? Are you a lifeguard? No. He's lying to us. I was a lifeguard in high school, but I didn't get a cool sweatshirt like that. Why would you want a sweatshirt if you're a lifeguard? Because I know it's hot outside. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's the opposite of what lifeguards need. True. Unless you're not lifeguarding during the winter, in which case or, you're not or, a lifeguard. Or it's like one of those no. polar bears. You're a death guard. What? <laughs> I don't know. Super cancer death guard. That's, that's what our hood is going to That's say. terrible. It is terrible. That's got But it would come out from this office for some reason. That is correct. All right, what's going on? All right, well, we just came back from a wonderful trip to Chicago, Kenny and I, and Allie Ward, actually, our VP of programs. We went to Chicago. Uh, I uh, spoke and apparently was invited to play the piano at the annual uh, 2012 Onco Fertility Conference with the wonderful Teresa Woodruff, put apparently. together at the Woodruff Lab at Northwestern. And I hadn't played piano in over a year, and I got an hour to warm up, and apparently I did okay. But there were, what, like, like 100 people in the room, Kenny? Yeah, I was the only one who picked up on all of your mistakes. Yeah, that's true. Now, when you say you haven't played in over a year, you mean you haven't played in front of an audience like that? No, I haven't touched a piano Why in over is a year. That? I have a keyboard in my house that I play like Wonder Pets for my kids on, but that's about it. And just because... Well, I the mean, keyboard's in her room, my daughter's room, and right. she, I can't go in there and play because they'll, they'll annoy me. I have no free time and quiet time. But this is time. the very fiber of your being. I know. In, in theory, yes. Right. One might argue that that is the case. Did mm. you say that your kids annoy you? No, well, if I'm playing piano, I can't play for me. They're going to come over and want to hear Wonder Pets. It's like that, that scene from uh, Mr. Holland's Opus when he's trying to compose and the kid opens the window. Yeah, exactly. Except they'll throw, like, feces at you. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> he's not that far off. No. No. They'll throw their Mickey and Minnie plastic dangerous things on my head. Yes. So you played? I played. I played for, what, like 30 minutes, 45 minutes? Something like that. How'd I do, Kenny? Uh, it was terrible. What did yeah. you play? I played my music, the music that I wrote when I was sick. Scribblings? Scribblings. Scribblings. Yeah. You can tell the scribbling story. The scribbling story? Yeah. Or why scribbling? Why it's called scribbling? Yes. No, no, no. Well, we know why. If you, well, I know why. But <laughs> no yeah. one else knows why. I've heard you talk. You have a for... CD called Scribblings. I have a CD called Scribblings, which I wrote in my head, and I wrote down notes with my opposite hand because I'm a lefty, and my left hand stopped working. Because you, your right. brain tumor left you with Sanskrit. It did. I wrote with Sanskrit prescription. On papyrus. Exactly. In papyrus. In papyrus phonics. Uh, incidentally, there's a Chrome extension for those techners out there that blocks papyrus from your browser. As it should. As it should. Anyway, uh, and non sequitur ending, uh, I lost the use of my left hand, as most people know when I was diagnosed with brain cancer. I was a concert pianist for 10 years at the time, and I was unable to go to grad school, and that was my story. But all the while I was trying to learn how to rehabilitate myself, I managed to have these musical ideas in my head to compose. But I couldn't write them down because my left hand didn't work, and I'm a lefty. So I wrote them down with my right hand, and it was like these, these like 
again, these caveman drawings of music that only I understood. So when I released my album in 2000 or 99, whatever it was, I called it Scribblings because no one understood what I wrote down. It was indecipherable uh, music. I heard that story before. So, yeah. now, so now the jump to what Scribblings is, yeah. John Sabia, the, our multimedia director and the lovely gentleman who drove cross country with me in the Volkswagen Beetle, Matt had done a PSA on real low budget, and it was like, you know, call 1-800-SCRIBBLINGS to get your copy of Scribblings. Blah, 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 blah. So John Sabia said that people who were, like, stoned at 3 in the morning would be like, I need Scribblings. Yes, it's like meth. Yes. It's the so. it's the solo piano version of meth. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the counter-opiate. It is. Anyway, so I played piano with the Uncle Facility Consortium for like 100 people. It was really cool. We had a stupid cancer happy hour that night with Johnny Maroon, mm-hmm. and we had like nice showing. Thirty, forty people came; yep, was yep. good, and a lot of new connections were made. It was really did exactly the job it was supposed to do. And then on Friday, we took a trip, the three of us, to Schaumburg, Illinois, oh, yeah. which is the corporate home office of Cancer Treatment Centers of America, our impact partner, mm-hmm. uh, which we thank every single day for their support of the organization. And uh, okay. Online at cancercenter.org. dot org. Care that doesn't quit. Care that doesn't quit. <laughs> I need like a dong, 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 some kind of like background this, chime. This CTCA yeah. moment was brought to you by CTCA. What? Yes, exactly. Okay. So we had a full day, like nine to four, straight meeting with lunch, uh, mapping out our our strategy for the next two years, what's going to happen, what we're going to do together. It's some really great stuff, and it just a really great weekend. And then Kenny, you are uh, going to. I'm going to Nashville. Nashville on Wednesday, right? Yeah, as if I haven't been enough places recently. Are You're you traveling a, more than me now. I am. Are you immersing yourself in nurses again? Yes, he is. <laughs> I'm going. Immersive nursing. This is really skin ugly. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, was trying to come up with a, a, a relevant Nurse immersing. Comment. Yeah. Yep. N- n- immersion. Enough said. N- yeah. Stop. You just said there's nurse immersing. <laughs> you don't need to take it any farther than that. I will lose my job. Yes. Encon. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so going to Encon to exhibit over. Encon like, is. NCON is the National Coalition of Nurse Navigators, Matthew. Yes. They are the go-to person throughout your cancer journey who, in an ideal situation, They're would one take collective you from, person? from point A to point B. Yes. It's one giant, like Voltron. It's like yeah. one big person assembled yeah. from other people. You have a ring that you can put up in the air and, and call them. Like Green Lantern. Exactly. Fantastic. So, so good luck with All that. Right. Yeah, super excited yeah. to be down there in Nashville. So that was just one week. You guys are busy good. guys. No, it's it's pretty cool. I'm just cool. sitting here re- wearing velvet. <laughs> what is that, velvet? Or not. It's is not that velvet. velvet. It's not velvet. Okay, it's not velvet. No, it's I velvet. I don't know what it is, though. All right, well, we got our first uh, caller into the show. You are listening to the Stupid Cancer Show, the musings of the wonderful Kenny Kane. The scribblings. Scribblings. Barbara Muser is a, I hope I pronounced that right, Barbara Muser is a respected speaker, educator, and author diagnosed with breast cancer in 1989. She had a child after treatment. She creates programs to heal the trauma of cancer to intimacy and sexuality. Barbara wrote, Sexy After Cancer, Meeting Your Inner Aphrodite on the Breast Cancer Journey. Please join me in welcoming to the Stupid Cancer Show, Barbara Muser. Hello, Barbara. Just tell me it's monster and I messed up. How you doing, Barbara? I'm good, really good. Happy to be here today. Did I wreck your last name? Yeah, you did. It's Lesser. Okay. okay. <laughs> we, we appreciate your candor. Nice comment. <laughs> it was either one or the other at a 50-50 chance. Man had brain cancer. Yep. I did, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I thank you for coming on the show. You had reached out so graciously and introduced us to your work and your book, and I, I was really compelled to have you on the show. So why don't we start from scratch? 1989 was a long time ago. It must have been very different to be diagnosed. So why don't you tell us? 
what that what the leading up to it and symptoms and how you're treated. Okay. Well, the way that I got uh, diagnosed was really kind of weird, actually. I was um, walking one day with a friend of mine who's a psychic. So first I have to say this Whoa. is one of those, like, only in California stories, right? Yeah. Ah, yes. So, so walking, walking with this psychic, and all of a sudden there was a man, and all of a sudden this female-sounding voice came out of his mouth saying, get your female parts checked out every six months for the next two years. And I looked at him, and he looked at me. You know, it was somebody that came through him, and I thought, oh, psychic, schmikic. But I made an appointment with my gynecologist, and they found a lump in my breast. And so that became began the diagnostic cha-cha, and, um, you know, it took lots and lots of different procedures until finally they discovered that I did have breast cancer. And um, way back then, there was not any standard protocol for treatment, and so I got lots of second opinions, and I heard everything from you don't need any further treatment than a lumpectomy to remove both your breasts, have a complete hysterectomy, have gallons and gallons of chemotherapy, and then you'll be fine. And so it was up to me to make the decisions that felt right to me for my treatment, and, and I chose to take as uh, low intervention an approach as I felt comfortable with. So I did have medical treatment, and then I also did a lot of complementary therapies and sort of put together my own program, and it worked because here I am 23 years later. I have to interject something that I, I hope is humorous, but can you uh, did did a very small lady come up to you after you were cured and say, This breast is clean <laughs> No, actually there's an even better story. So part of my treatment was um meditation and visualization and one day I asked for any images that would be helpful to me in healing myself and it was like all of a sudden watching a movie. I saw these two women dressed in long white dresses with big hats on in a garden and they would go in the garden and pull the weeds and put the weeds in the palm of their hand and in the sunshine the weeds would just shrivel up and and I instinctively knew that those weeds were my cancer and I did that visualization every day for six months and then six months later it's time to do the visualization the women are standing outside the garden refusing to go in and I'm getting a little panicky saying you gotta go in the garden come on it's time and finally one of them said there's no more weeds so that was my version of the little lady saying the cancer is gone. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, if there were shares to buy in the psychic industry, they would have spiked <laughs> and soared, and the industry as a whole would have gone through the roof knowing this. <laughs> I have blessed that man many, many times. I'm still in touch with him. He's become a good friend. Of course you are. Yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't yeah. you be? Yeah. So that's yeah. amazing. So you said that you're, um, so 1989, you went to, I mean, I was diagnosed breast cancer in 1995, but as we know, I mean, one year goes by and that's leaps and bounds. But you said that you you had kind of minimal treatment. You went for a bunch of different opinions and kind of min, did, did what was minimally. Yeah, you felt I was had, best. Um, I ended up having a second surgery because they weren't sure they had cleared the margin. So um, unbeknownst to me, it was really a partial mastectomy, but they didn't call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had all my lymph nodes removed because at that point they didn't take just sentinel nodes. They took right. them all. Same with me and, in 95, yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. fortunately nothing in the nodes. And so right. I opted to have radiation, but I skipped to the big boost at the end. And um, that was it. Wow. So tell us then about your, your book that you've written, Sexy After Cancer, Meeting Your Inner Aphrodite on the Breast Cancer Journey. How did the idea for this book come about? Well, it came from my own experience and lots and lots of friends. So uh, 
I don't know how it was for you when you got your diagnosis and treatments, but I felt like damaged goods. I mean, I felt like that's damaged. exactly the term, yes, that I think you know, that I, I would like use and a lot of people would use. I felt like damaged goods before yeah. cancer, right? <laughs> and so, you know, because we live in a culture where you have to have this very media pretty body and right. face, and I, I don't fit that. And so... Um, I knew for sure. I was single at the time. I knew for sure that nobody was going to want to be with me. And I was young. I was 37. I hadn't had any babies. And I did. I felt like I was robbed of my choice. And, and so it was important to me to heal my sense of uh, myself as a desirable, attractive, sexy woman. Mm-hmm. And so I did a lot of deep inner work um, to be able to do that, including realizing that I was drinking what I call the media Kool-Aid about what attractive is. Mm-hmm. And stopping drinking the Kool-Aid and doing, finding inside me things that I only hoped were there to see what I was really made of and to discover for myself what I think the nature of beauty and sexiness is, which has a whole lot to do with confidence. And as I did that, there was a lot of stuff that came up for healing. And one of the things I did was I attended some workshops called Love, Intimacy, and Sexuality. And the cool thing about these workshops is that they're clothing optional which means that people in the workshops have the option of getting naked. Clothing Very, optional. Yeah. I was, just, I was just touting that, you know, clothing was overrated. I, literally, I so before the show started. Yeah. But that's not something we want to incorporate to this office. Why not? Uh, <laughs> have you seen me? Seeing as how athletic Matthew and I are. <laughs> so there I was in this workshop, and I took my clothes off, and it was a huge thing for me. And then there was an opportunity during the workshop to stand up in front of this group. It was 100 people and uh, share my experience. And I wanted to show my body. I mean, that was like like a big leap for me. And so there I stood in front of all these people naked, shaking like a leaf, sweating like crazy, and crying. And all these people are looking at me like I'm this gorgeous woman. And I asked them if they thought I was attractive and if my breasts thought they were attractive, even with these big scars. And they all looked at me like, what, what are you talking about? You're gorgeous. And so in that moment, that was the transformation for me about my beauty doesn't have anything really to do with what my breasts look like or what I think they look like. Right. And so that really got my attention, and I became a facilitator of those workshops, and for 15 years I traveled the world leading those workshops, and there were always people in those workshops with cancer and always lots of women with breast cancer, and it was hugely helpful for them. So from that experience and then um, a couple years ago, Here's another one of these woo-woo moments. Um, I was A friend of mine got a second breast cancer diagnosis, and I was really compelled to go with her to all of her medical appointments. And it's more complicated with a second diagnosis, and so I knew questions to ask, and I could hold her hand and take notes and help her decipher all the information. And, and um, I was driving her to the hospital to have a mastectomy, and she turned to me in the car and put her hand on my shoulder and said, Barbara, I think this is your work. And it was like, oh, the light went off. All of a sudden, all the dots connected. And I realized that, yeah, of course, this is the perfect combination of my own experience, what I'm passionate about, and helping lots and lots of people. Because the thing about our sexuality is it's the elephant in the room that doesn't get talked about in the doctor's office. Yeah. Well, I I have to say, I just have to cut you off there because, again, I go back to Matthew and I have done 200 and some odd shows together. And you've just, you know, you've crossed, you've broken barriers here with a series of firsts. Psychics, 
standing naked in a room crying, letting people see you. This is this is this is amazing, though. I mean, this is kind well, of. Well, you've new, only been here different. two years, Lisa. You don't know what happened to, to before you started. Oh, I, I put Barbara. I put naked. Barbara up against anybody. Okay, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, but but pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, and it's time, you know. So so I I realize now that the world's been waiting for me to be able to open these doors so people can actually talk about their sexuality and heal what needs to be healed and have a great intimate and sexual life during and after cancer treatment. So Barbara, you, you know our organization is is specifically uh, for how young adults are affected right. by cancer, and you were 37, so you right. understand that, that, you know, obviously sexuality, self-image, intimacy, relationships, it's very, very different when you're in your 20s and 30s going through a catastrophic disease than when you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, there are different issues going on. Right. Um, so we, we, we like to frame everything through the lens of that. You know, are you able to comment on, you know, how um, – how, how your life has changed in terms of your sexuality and relationship to breast cancer uh, now that you're over 37. Yeah. Well, I have the best sex life now that I've ever had, and I'm happy to say that because I've really expanded my definition of what sex is and my repertoire of what's possible. And, you know, there's something about being able to talk about it and being willing to talk about it and being willing to try stuff that... Yes, it's different now than when I was 37, and all I can say is it just gets better. And I never thought that I would be saying that. Do you have any, and I'm sure you've talked about this a lot, but what are your recommendations for folks? There's always that question, I don't, and I don't feel like there's too many times that we can bring this up, but when you're with a new partner, there's always that moment, what do you say, when's the appropriate time, Right. How do I tell them? What's, what's your advice in, in those kinds of scenarios? And I'm sure, I don't know if there's a, you know, a one-size-fits-all here, but generally speaking, what do, you, what do you recommend? I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. I think it depends on what feels right to each person. You know, some people, like me, you know, I, I just, I say what I feel. And, you know, I'm you take right your shirt off right it. in the restaurant. Yeah, yeah. right. So, so, you know, I'm right up front about it um, if, yeah. if I have somebody new that I'm spending time with. And, um and there are other people that want to establish more of a connection first be- before they say that. But, you know, I mean, talking about cancer is uh, is a great equalizer. You know, you find out uh, who's who's worth keeping and who's not pretty fast when you tell them. Sure. So um, I'm an advocate of sooner rather than later, but it has to, do, has to be what feels right for you. Right. Matt, did you want to jump in? Well, it's funny. We have a lot of friends in common. Uh, we are – I'm very close with uh, – the Young Survival Coalition, we do a lot of great work with them. And uh, I, I spoke at C4IW this year, and we exhibit every single year. What was your experience in meeting, such, like, you know, 800 young women uh, affected by breast cancer and speaking at that con- kind of conference? Yeah, well, I'm speaking next year, actually. I haven't done it yet. Well, we'll see you there. Um, oh, you haven't yeah, done it yet. Okay, definitely. well, we'll see you there. Yeah. Um, it, it, I was just there checking it out. It's amazing, really amazing. And I'm really happy to be speaking with them. And I'm also uh, submitting a chapter in this um, Tend to Thrive ebook, which I think you guys are going to help promote, right? Apparently. But <laughs> <laughs> I was told. <laughs> but that's specifically aimed at young people, too. And so I'll have a chapter in there about 10 tips um, for getting back your intimacy and sexual mojo. Have you worked with, um, like, social workers and nurses on uh, on bringing this message directly to patients? 
Yeah, absolutely. I and I've worked with a lot of tumor boards and I do I do a lot of teaching in hospitals. I'm doing as much teaching and speaking as I can because I want to get this message out to as many people as I can. So twofold. One is I'm talking to the patients directly and I I do teleseminars and webinars and all that kind of stuff. And um and then I also want to be a support to the medical peeps because, you know, these days with managed care they say they don't have time to talk about it, but really a lot of them aren't comfortable and they're not trained. I mean, the, the sum total of training about sexuality that docs get in medical school is just a couple hours, and, and it's mostly about they're trained to look for pathology rather than to teach people how to be healthy and have fun. Right. Um, we get, we get uh, told this all the time. When you go to see the doctor, they never ask you what do you eat. They also never ask you how's your sex life. They also right. never ask you specific things. They, It's a very clinical and, and dry uh, experience. Is that something you see maybe changing down the road, or can you really change physician behavior? Well, I think I think there's a right way to approach it, you know. And and if I position myself as a complement to what they're doing, I get a better um, uh, audience with them than if I'm telling them what to do, um, which seems really um, common sense to me. But the other thing that's happening is a lot of hospitals are now beginning to recognize the need for ongoing treatment programs after people have finished their active treatment or if they're in managed treatment and they're suddenly realizing that oh there are quality of life issues here that need to be tended to so i think that there's an opening that's starting to happen there and i've done a lot of teaching around san francisco at some of the medical schools and um, people love it because i don't do the you know powerpoint slide presentation i'm in there with my volvo puppet (laughs) showing people how to use it and and giving them tips and, and tools. And that's something that the doctors appreciate because, like I said, they don't have the time. And and they actually learn for themselves, too, I think. Another first, Volva Puppet. That's the name of my band. <laughs> that's my band. <laughs> Matt and the Volva Puppet. <laughs> to, to, that, to, that point, to that point, it's really true. What's great about Barbara is if you go to her website, you'll see on her blog, on her blog, she's very frank and to the point about what it is she's trying to get across. Man, I I.e., vaginal restoration and renewal program. Man, I thought. Yeah, you, sorry. Stop interrupting Lisa when she's talking about sex. Whether you have chemo or hormonal therapies for cancer treatment, are menopausal or perimenopausal, or haven't had genital sex for a while, you may wonder if it's possible to renew your vaginal tissue. The short answer is yes, and this program will help you too. So, I mean, these are serious issues for women, obviously, who've gone through yeah. chemotherapy and all kinds of treatments, as you say, hormonal treatments. So good stuff to to get out there and, and talk about in detail. Yeah, and what's happening is I'm getting a lot of requests to work with people with other cancers. And so in 2013, I'll be expanding my repertoire, too. Um, and there are, there are certain issues that are specific to breast cancer, but there's others that go across all cancers. And so I'm going to be giving lots for lots of folks, and I'm happy to be doing that. Good deal. All right. Well, we're we're really happy to have you on the show, Barbara. Thank you so much for joining us. And the website is sexyaftercancer.com. Put that in yes. the chat room, Kenny. We also, which is also the name of the book. That's right. And if people are interested in more, because we've only had a few minutes, on Thursday I'm giving a free webinar, and um, that's about how to get your mojo back. Is and the clothing optional? Mm, well, it's in the privacy of your own home. So if you want to be, you can. Matt, you could wear your Merkin. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so that one is sexyaftercancer.com forward slash free hyphen webinar. Fantastic. Slash. So join me. 
Barbara Musser, thank you so much for coming on the show. Good luck, and hopefully we'll see you at C4YW next year. Thanks, yeah, Barbara. Yeah, you definitely will. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Volvo Puppet. Volvo Puppet. Man, that takes Crank Anchors to a new level. That sure sounds, does. Sounds like a, a punk rock band. That's my band. That's what he said. That's my band. band. You don't listen, Kenny. Where were you? You were sleeping. I was listening. No. Kenny was in the chat room. I know. I was, I was in the chat room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, we got some news? Yeah, we got some news. I suppose we should uh, cue that up here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Okay, here at Stupid Cancer, we promote and host hundreds of U.S. events each year and don't want you missing out. We're talking about financial webinars, fertility conferences, kayaking retreats, meetups, tweetups, road trips, concerts, and more. Hey, Kenny, where can people find out about these awesome events? Hey, Matt, you can head on over to events.stupidcancer.com, or if you're in Phoenix on Friday night, you can head over to their Stupid Cancer Happy Hour. Then you can drive over to Denver on Saturday night for their happy hour. And finally, you can head over to L.A. for the We Spark Group, which is every Thursday night. That's a hell of a road trip. That is a... I might just do one next year. I think you might. I think you might. All right, it's official. Mark your calendars for OMG 2013, the 6th annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults, April 25th through April 28th at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas. That's April 25th through 28th, four days of awesome. At one of the largest patient gatherings of its kind in the world, visit omg2013.org today and learn more about the OMG Players Club, an exciting way to earn travel reimbursement through fundraising. That's omg2013.org. The Stupid Cancer Store now has over 14 awesome products for sale right now, from pins, pens, stickers, and lanyards, to an awesome, because we like to say awesome twice, Survivor Journal and the most amazing graphic tees you've ever seen. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer, stupidcancerstore.org. And finally, the Stupid Cancer Forums have over 2,500 active members every day. This is your premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.com and sign up with one click through Facebook. And that is your Stupid Stupid Cancer Cancer News. All right. We got a great show tonight. Kicking off National Breast Cancer Awareness Month 2012. The pink is on. The pink is on. All right. Here we go. Tarsha Jones is a public health nurse, nurse educator, and an aspiring nurse scientist. As a Ph.D. student at Duquesne University, I hope I pronounced that right, her research interest is in the early onset of breast cancer among young black women. She serves as a member of Komen's Multicultural Advisory Council, and I'm thrilled to have her on the show along with Pam Cromwell and Milet Lopez, who Lisa shall introduce right now. Pam Cromwell is currently a business analyst and has been working in technology for over 10 years. She's the CEO and founder of her nonprofit, Pink for Pam. Her vision is, quote, to paint a new picture of cancer by educating the world that there is a difference between being a survivor and being a fighter. In addition to helping people channel their energy towards living normal, full lives is by keeping mind, body, and spirit as healthy as possible. As possible, that's period. Recently, she's been featured on both Fox and CBS News and in an article within Tribune Papers. Lastly, in 2006, she was named one of KISS FM's Phenomenal Women. That's awesome for her work in breast cancer awareness in young women. And returning champ, Milet Lopez. While undergoing treatment for type 2B breast cancer, Milet Lopez realized 
There was a serious problem that accompanied dealing with the cancer that even she, of a loving and devoted support network, couldn't escape. The feeling of isolation and confusion that accompanied the disease and her treatment. Don't we know it? After surviving her battle with cancer, she wanted to help the next person affected, so she chronicled her experience and created a blog to connect with people who, to share their experience about the disease. By harnessing the power of social media and the resources of a seasoned interactive team, I Had Cancer was born. Welcome. Myla Lopez, Lopez, Pam Cronwell, and Tarsha Jones. Jones. Teamwork. The trifecta. Tarsha, are you with us? I am in the house. We are psyched to have you. Where are you calling in from? I am calling in from Virginia. Oh, East Coast, not too far. Yeah, it is so great to be here with you all tonight. You are both so incredible. Thank you so oh, much. We're thrilled to have you, Tarsha. We're a fan of you guys, too. It's awesome stuff. So let's, let's just kick this off. I want to start by just introducing our listenership to the Multicultural Advisory Council at the Susan G. Coming for the Cure. Uh, can you just talk about that, how you got involved? And I, I'm fascinated by your bio, nurse scientist. I haven't heard those two words put together before. <laughs> Many people have not. Um, they don't realize that you can actually get a Ph.D. in nursing, which is what is just so fascinating about nursing. So uh, uh, in the end, I'll be a doctor nurse, actually. Wow. Because, yeah, that's really That's fantastic. very confusing. What do we call you, Dr. Nurse? <laughs> you Dr. Call nurse? <laughs> Dr. Nurse Tarsha? Dr. Nurse Tarsha. <laughs> Paging Dr. Nurse Tarsha Jones. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yes, I just wanted to frame the context in terms of how I actually got involved in advocacy work. Fortunately, I am not a survivor. Instead, I was inspired by my own family history of breast cancer. So in 2005, my grandmother died of metastatic breast cancer. She was diagnosed with advanced stage disease, and she died within a year and a half of her diagnosis. It was absolutely horrible. Uh, Despite having a mastectomy, the cancer spread all over her body and to her brain. She was only 69 years old, and to me that was way too young to die. As we all know, you know, there's certainly been a significant significant advancement uh, in diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer over the years. Now the five-year survival rate when caught early before it spreads beyond the breast is now 98% for uh, women over age 40. But unfortunately for my grandmom, uh, prior to her diagnosis, she lived in Jamaica, the wonderful country of Jamaica. Uh But preventative care is not as accessible as it is in the United States, so she could not afford routine mammography screening. So had uh, had her situation been different, you know, she would have been diagnosed at an earlier stage and probably would be here with our family today. Wow. So tell yeah. so that was she was your really your inspiration. So give us kind of the broad strokes so people know more about what the Susan Komen Multicultural Council is all about. Absolutely. So back in 2007, I served on what was known as the Young Women's National Advisory Council at the time. And this experience changed my life. It really has changed the course of my career path as well. Um, I met the most incredible, amazing young women who were either battling breast cancer, who were survivors, or who were just passionate about the cause, many of whom both you and Matthew know, like Bridget, who was diagnosed um, in college at age 21, Alyssa, uh, Alyssa, who's a very good friend of mine, who was diagnosed at age 23, 
uh, Nakia was diagnosed at age 16 with breast cancer. Uh, Liz, uh, Lindsay Abner, who's the founder of Bright Pink, um, she had an 85% risk of developing breast cancer, so she had a preventative mastectomy. So we met uh, young women from around the country who told us the most appalling stories about their cancer journey. We heard uh, many stories of young women who experienced a delay in diagnosis, um, and their stories certainly drove our efforts and our work with Komen. Today, um, the Multicultural Advisory Council, well, the Young Women's National Advisory Council has been integrated into now what is called the Multicultural Advisory Council. So today I represent Komen on um, this joint council with another group of incredible men and women. And we are an external body that offers advice, uh, guidance, and support to Komen um, on various issues such as like multicultural marketing, um, educational products, certainly public policy. Um, previously we've attended um, several lobby days on Capitol Hill. And we um, advise them in terms of outreach to specific populations, such as uh, LGBT, young women, uh, African-American women, Hispanic, Latina women, Asian Pacific Islander, um, American Indian, and Alaskan Native. So Coleman is certainly committed to uh, improving the breast health care of underserved populations, and so that is how the Multicultural Advisory Council was formed. That's great. So let's talk. Tonight's show is obviously about African-American women and um, and Latina women, and we'd, we'd like to address, first of all, hit us with some facts, because I know that, say, for instance, women who are diagnosed, African-American women, let's start with, under the age 45, have a higher incidence of breast yes. cancer yes, than absolutely. white women. Is that correct? So hit us with the sort of mortality facts and some facts and figures about diagnoses for African-American women. Absolutely. So, yeah, so while breast cancer kills nearly 40,000 people every year, the disease has no boundaries. It certainly does not discriminate. However, there are significant differences in mortality among specific racial groups, such as African-American women and Latino women, which is why this show is just so absolutely pertinent tonight. In general, African-American women, they have a lower lifetime risk of developing breast cancer after the age of 45. Mm -hmm. However, they are more likely to die of breast cancer regardless of the age that they're diagnosed. So this is what we mean by an unequal burden of disease or health disparity. Um, more strikingly, uh, younger black women are more likely to develop an early onset of breast cancer prior to the recommended screening age of age 40. And they're more likely to, be, to develop a, a very aggressive type of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer. Are you right. all familiar with uh, triple negative breast cancer? Yes, we are. Sure. Well, you, you can give a, give a thumbnail sketch just in case. We are, but just tell the folks out there. Sure. So, so just for our, our listeners, so, yeah, so tumors um, that are diagnosed in most black women have more aggressive features. So they're higher grade, they're, um, and, and they're what we call triple negative in nature. So they are negative for estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and um, HER2 uh, receptor. So without getting too scientific, um, most targeted therapies for breast cancer are certainly targeted at hormone positive breast cancer. Right. So the proteins in the triple negative are all negative. 
and so uh, hormone hormone positive protein is not what's driving the cancers. And the issue with that is that most therapies, such as like Herceptin and Tamoxifen, are targeted towards um, hormone positive breast cancer. So your so treatments fact, are, are narrowed. Your treatments are, are more limited in that case. Yeah. So the yeah. treatments are more um, certainly more narrowed. Um, while triple negative disease does respond to chemotherapy, there aren't these wide range of targeted therapies that can be um, given to women with triple negative as as with women who have um, positive, uh, HER2 uh, positive breast cancer. So just because of this aggressive form of breast cancer that we see in African-American women and in younger women in general, that puts younger black women at more of a disadvantage when they are diagnosed with breast cancer, and particularly at a very early age. So that's just an important distinction to make is that there are different types of breast cancer. We, we no longer look at breast cancer, breast cancer as just one big disease. There are specific types, and the treatments that exist for breast cancer certainly will depend on the type of breast cancer um, right. that one is, one is diagnosed with. And for any, oh, I was just going to say for anyone who's um, truly interested in learning more about triple negative breast cancer, certainly they can go to um, Susan G. Komen uh, for the Cures website at Komen.org and find out more. But also, there's a organization called the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, um, and they have wonderful information and resources for patients about triple negative disease. I just want to. Um bring things over to Pamela Cremel. We have two amazing young adult uh, survivors of breast cancer in the studio <clears throat> live with us tonight. Um, Pam Cromwell uh, is an African-American woman who was diagnosed with breast cancer, and Mylet Lopez is a uh, Hispanic young woman who was diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, they're here to share their stories through the lens of sort of this disparity. I'm I'm quite fascinated by the, the sort of the bifurcation of the disparity, which is, A, there's the clinical issues, which are more aggressive tumors, uh, lower access to care, you know, stigma with that, but there's also cultural relevancies as well. So I was hoping, I want to bring out Pam, because Pam's sitting here, uh, <laughs> waiting to talk, and she, she's really wonderful, um, to just welcome her to the show and, and have her maybe just talk a little about her diagnosis and did you face as an African-American woman, you know, what was that like? Was it different? And, and I'll turn it over to you. Okie dokie. Um, I think for me, I was diagnosed six months before I turned 30. Um, and I'm very career oriented, which I think also is another whole, um, piece of the, of the matter. Um, so it wasn't just a matter of dealing with cancer. It was trying to keep, uh, continue growing in a career, um, which is, a very hard thing, and being African-American, so I feel like I'm a triple negative there myself. Um, yeah. Cancer, woman, and African-American. Um, but I did notice that just because of my age and um, because of my area wasn't maybe the most diverse, they weren't able to kind of look deeper into my cancer or, or I guess kind of say what it could be. It was always a cyst. It was never cancer. Um, and even when... Um, they kept saying I would go back and the cyst was growing, so then it became a larger cyst. Um, and by the time I was diagnosed, it took them really six months to diagnose me, and that's me coming forward the minute I found a lump. Right. Um, so it was that was stressful, to say the least, um, because you're putting your, hand, your life in the hands of what you would say is your doctor is supposed to know it all, and you know they told me I had six months to live because I was an African-American woman and that I was young and that the the 
you know, my chances weren't good. So the the first doctor I had told me, you know, most likely I wouldn't make it the six-month mark, which really? would have made it my 30th birthday. So, yeah, good times. Um, were you triple negative, or what were the details of your diagnosis? No, at that time, they didn't know. They were, All yeah. they knew is that I had cancer. Right. They didn't know anything else. But because I was an African-American woman, and I was young. So at, at that time, really, all that you, all they said to you was, you have breast cancer, <laughs> yeah. you'll be goodbye in six months? <laughs> You're African-American, see, yeah. in six months? Like like the way your cancer is moving, it's growing, because it had doubled in size, the tumor, in this you know right. misadventures of being diagnosed. So even without anything else, that's what I was already told that because I was African American and I'm young and the tumor's growing quickly, most likely I would make it within the I would pass away in the first in within six months. That's pretty astounding. I mean, we do hear obviously a lot of stories of young adults being misdiagnosed. I mean, you said you were six months before your thirtieth birthday, mm-hmm. unsuspecting just by your age right, right off the right, bat. Right. Um, need, you know, need I bring up my Robitussin for brain cancer right. story? Right. You know, I want to, and then we're going to bring in Milet here, but I want to touch um, on this point that's actually in your notes, Tarsha, which I find fascinating about part of the reason for uh, whether it's preventing African-American or Hispanic women from going to doctors, but this idea of mistrust of the medical (laughs) community and mistrust of doctors um, among a minority population. Speak to that. I find that fascinating, very disheartening, understandable, <laughs> all of it. Can you kind of that out for us, Tarsha? Absolutely. So when we think of disparities in general, certainly there are many factors that are driving disparities, driving why uh, women are being diagnosed at later stages, why they're not getting um, adequate screening at, um, you know, at, at the appropriate recommended time. But certainly, um, the cultural issues is one, and yes, mistrust or distrust of healthcare professionals is one of the major barriers that um, African American women and Hispanic women face. And probably just hearing Pam's story, you know, when you do go to your healthcare provider, if if you don't feel that you know they have your best interests at heart, then you are not going to trust them. You know, if you haven't developed the relationship with them, then you know it, it's not going to be easy for you to um, go and, and seek care on a consistent basis. So, um, unfortunately, that is one of the major cultural issues with African American um, and even minority populations is certainly um, that lack of ability to. Uh, to, to trust healthcare providers, and, and it's really actually a historical piece that 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 drives that, which is certainly beyond the scope of um, um, of the show. But um, that is also an issue that public health officials are trying to um, address to you know facilitate um, timely screening for um, for African Americans and for minorities to. Um. to Oh, I'm sorry. I just I just wanted to interject something. Pam though. jumping yeah. back in. Sorry. Yeah. Um, one thing though, I I do want to kind of point out is the fact that I I don't know if it's necessarily mistrust. I mean, we we go to our doctors for our yearly physical. Um, we do we live a pretty healthy lifestyle. There's really no reason to trust or mistrust if you're going to the doctor maybe once a year for a cold or for your yearly physical. I think something that's important is in media we don't see different colors in cancer. Right. So why would we expect to ask the same questions 
when we're going to our doctor. Who I my crash course became when I was a cancer patient. Right. Before that, I had no idea, and it, and I'm not an ignorant person, and it wasn't yeah. because of anything that anyone did or didn't do. It's just that you just don't if you don't see it, you don't know about it. Like any other facet of society, that's it. You don't see a working right. woman or somebody who's ill. I, I hate to say it, but uh, for lack of a better term, I hope someone as prominent as a Robin Roberts, who's out there now battling, and that she has a second diagnosis as well. I mean, an incredible figure, public figure and role model out there for all women, but, right. you know, obviously in particular for African-American women, uh, for all women. Myla, how about you in terms of your diagnosis? I mean, was there anything particular that came up in any sort of discussions for you about being a Hispanic woman, anything that was addressed, or just your feelings in general about your relationship with your doctor that came up anywhere along your your road to your road from illness to recovery? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think I was probably really lucky because I had great support from my parents, and my family. Um, so I didn't encounter a lot of those issues, but I can see how some women would have distrust in their doctors. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a household with family members who, if you had a problem, you know, they'll say, rub this on there, and, you know, you didn't have to go to the Windex, doctor. Windex, Windex. Or bourbon, I think it was. I want to live in your house. <laughs> I know, I was going to say, I'll take the bourbon. <laughs> no. Hey, just put a little yeah. honey in it, and that well, was maybe, it. Yeah, bourbon for breast cancer, I don't know. Oh, wow, that's <laughs> yeah. my new band. <laughs> Another new band. Um, so yeah, I can totally understand that, mm-hmm. and I think um, I think it has to do with a lot of education. You have to educate people because I wasn't thrown into the cancer world until my aunt was diagnosed and passed away from ovarian cancer. Before that, none of my family had even really like been affected by it. Mm-hmm. And so once that happened, then that's when the research started, and then two years later is when I was diagnosed. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's just uh, education more than more than awareness, I think. It's just letting people know what to look for, what are the signs, and that people of color, Latinas, can, get, can, um, can be affected. I just read recently um, an article that the leading cause of death now in Hispanics is actually cancer. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, wow. Tarsha, do you want to chime in a bit about the, uh, I mean, this this show is obviously the multicultural issues facing, advisor council facing African-American and Latina women. What are the stats on your end uh, on the the, uh, Hispanic side? Well, first, I wanted to just comment on uh, my last statement just about the education piece and how crucial that is. And earlier when I was talking about the distrust, one of the things that I I do need to um, clarify or even emphasize is that, you know, people tend to gravitate to, um, you know, what they're familiar with. So one of the things that Uh, One of the efforts to improve um, screening among minority population in general is also to have more healthcare providers that that are of the same racial or ethnic background so that they can relate to those providers. And one of the um, uh, initiatives or movements right now that has been initiated by Susan G. Komen for the Cure is called the Circle of Promise. And I'm not sure if you all have heard of this, but 
This is a movement that was created by Komen to further um, engage black women around the globe in the fight against breast cancer. Um, They formed a community of advocates and ambassadors of breast breast health uh, for women of color. So the Circle of Promise was started around um, African-American women and engaging them in breast health, but there also are similar initiatives for Hispanic women just because of that very striking statistic that, um, yeah, breast cancer is, uh, or cancer in general is the uh, one of the leading cause of death among Hispanic women. Now, now knowing that the Hispanic population is growing, it's certainly a significant um, issue. So now that means we have to engage these populations more. We need to increase the education. We need to increase the awareness so that they are empowered um, to to really just take their own health in their control um, and to find another doctor if they don't trust the one that they had initial contact with and to re- for them to really know what their options are. Tarsha, is there anything in terms of, and I, I don't believe there is, but I just want to have you confirm this. I mean, in terms of the diagnosis or late diagnosis, we have all these issues of um, reasons why why they have the late diagnosis in terms of not seeing doctors and not getting the right attention, distrust, and all these other factors. Yes. Anything genetically in terms of diet or place where they live or family history, again, in the genetics, doesn't really point to that, does, or, or does it in terms of both the um Hispanic and and African-American. And African-American. Yeah. Well, um, I can definitely speak to um, the African-American population. There is a lot of research that's emerging in the area of genetics and genomics. Um, There's also some studies that have indicated that possibly African ancestry is associated with um, a biologically more aggressive type of breast cancer. Hmm. So, yes, this area is certainly emerging. There's no definitive answer um, as yet to to indicate why um, breast cancers are happening at an earlier age in black women. But um, I know uh, one researcher in particular, Dr. Lisa Newman from the University of Michigan, she's actually participating or undertaking research in Ghana, West Africa, um, because they are seeing younger women there who are diagnosed with triple negative disease and are diagnosed at a younger age. So they're comparing um, breast cancers in in Ghanaian women to breast cancers in younger African-American women. And with the whole human genome project and the emergence of genetic research, I think we are going to um, understand more about that genetic component. Right now we know uh, that women of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, um, they are more predisposed to breast cancer because of uh, BRCA1 and gene BRCA1 and 2 gene mutation. So um, I imagine in the near future we will find out more about that genetic piece. Tarsha, it's Matt. Can you comment a little bit about the, any actions that Coleman is doing on uh, with regard to access to quality care for underserved populations? Sure. So while, while I can't, as an external partner to Komen, discuss their funding in detail um, and their efforts, what I do know is that Komen has found, funded more than uh, $12 million in research uh, to understand genetics and treatment issues unique to women of color in general. Um, and they've funded community health programs nationwide to improve education um, and screening and treatment options for 
uh, treatment programs for women of color, African-American women, Hispanic women, Native American women, all women of color in general. And they certainly have this global outreach. So they have established programs um, and partnerships in the Caribbean and in Africa um, to really understand that, that genetic piece and to bridge that gap in access and to be able to provide more women of color um, with access to care. I want to talk about, oh, Matt, did you? No, you can ask, please. Go yes, ahead. I, because there's so much that surrounds breast cancer. Beyond the diagnosis, I'd, I'd like to talk about some of the disparities in treatment. Because, and you touched on uh, the University of Michigan, there was a study that came out of the University of Michigan back in um, 2007 about how nearly 70% of women who are eligible for breast reconstruction were not informed of their reconstructive options. And I believe the majority of those women were African-American and Hispanic or minority women, not informed of the total range of options available to them should they choose, should they want to have reconstruction, which it's obviously wow. good to have all the information. Yeah, which is a pretty, a pretty shocking. That is statistic. very shocking. I think that is very shocking. And it also uh, speaks to vulnerable, underserved uh, populations, you know. And so if, um, if, especially when you're looking at women who are of a lower socioeconomic status, who right. maybe don't really understand those options that are available to them. You right. all mentioned, like, nurse navigators and how crucial, like, nurse navigators are to 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 vulnerable groups who really they 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 need a guide they need someone to navigate them through their options um, and to be able to help them to make informed decisions um, and so it really means reaching out to um, organizations and provide and, and and finding that support network you know if they're unsure of how to approach um, their 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 treatment options and Susan G Coming for the Cure certainly does uh, provide a large network um, of options for uh, for women who are newly diagnosed who are at various stages of the continuum of, of, of breast cancer treatment. Right, and I think also with Latina women, for some of them, language can even be just another simple barrier in terms of communication. Let's get back to both Milet and Pam here. Talk about then that that experience exactly with your doctors. I mean, did you feel everything was thorough, that you were given time, any way along the path of your journey, every option was laid out to you. I mean, how did those relationships develop between you and your doctors and in terms of them really... Oh, Follow-up, really. Yeah, fo following up, letting you know every possible course that you could, could have taken down the road, reconstruction, et cetera. Um, I can definitely say that after the first doctor told me I had six months to live, we decided that that wouldn't be a good option since he already had kind of given up on me. Um, but the next doctor that I, I worked with, she was actually African-American. She was about two or three years older than I was. And I don't think it was just because she was African-American, but we did identify with each other. I think it was more about our age. So she understood what I was going through, mm -hmm. and she did give me options. Um, the problem was is that when I first started getting treatment, not all the communication was together. So where I received um, chemotherapy wasn't the same place where I had received radiation. Um, so were where, you in a big city or a small town? I was in a big city for for chemo, but not for the radiation, okay. and that definitely changed things. There's a lot of options that I didn't know about, and I actually had the insurance, and I didn't find out about until three years later. Huh. 
So like he, what, for instance? Um, for during radiation, there's special cream. If you go to a dermatologist, they're able to prescribe to you. But if you put it on, it will minimize the damage that your skin gets. A lot of people don't understand that with reconstruction, if you're going to go the route of um, implants, then you really should do your in- radiation first. A lot of times you just think, let's just get it all done, but yeah. but you don't know your skin shrinks and then it's tight, it hurts. And a lot of times it fails because the skin breaks. It's right. just not strong enough. So there's special um, treatments that you can do mm-hmm. to help protect your skin. Right. So I didn't know. So if they details like that, you were you, you Those were are big with. details. Yeah. But, I mean, I think. Big details, right. <laughs> big yeah. details. Yeah. Um, but I think the the big thing was is that, I didn't know where to look. And right. this is even an, an educated person yeah. who I didn't know. Like, yeah. where do you know where to ask these questions? And your doctors, there's so many people that they're seeing. So unless you make yourself stand out, they're not going to know that you are going to demand special treatment. Right, right. How about you, for you, my Any thoughts come to mind? Yeah, um, well, I got two different opinions. Um, one was a female doctor, a surgeon, who told me I should get a mastectomy. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, I'm kind of young. I don't want to do that. Um, and she said, you know, you can do radiation or chemotherapy first. We can, you know, try to get the tumor smaller and then do that or vice versa. So I decided to go for a second opinion. So I went for a second opinion. It was a man, a much older man. Um, and so he said, oh, we can do a lumpectomy. Right then and there, that same day, he was ready to book my surgery. Hmm. So I actually took a step back, and I'm like, well, this is just, this is a lot to consider. It's like my life is going to change. I can't just book a surgery right now for next week. Like booking an airline ticket? Exactly. (laughs) Surgery, right. So um, I actually told him that I had a party. (laughs) (laughs) It was like my company was just moving offices. We had this big party planned. It was three weeks later. I said, can I push it until then? And he actually, he, he said, okay, no, not any further than that. Mm-hmm. So that actually gave me the time to really kind of come to terms with diagnosis and what I was going to do and kind of prepare. It actually gave me some time. I cut my hair short just to really, like, right. understand and not be so frightened by the time that that day comes, um, which I think was really helpful. Now, I can't recommend that for everyone because, you know, yeah. I don't know what people's stages are, but right. it was right for me, right. and it made a big difference. Um and then I just forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> so in the end, so you decided so you had these two opinions, right? Okay. And then you decided in the end. Oh, so in the end, I decided to go with the lumpectomy. Right. Um, well, I mean, it just made a lot of sense. Right. And um, in that process, in the, that three weeks, I was also able to do other things that were, um, you know, like um, acupuncture. Um, I was taking different herbs. I was doing a lot of different things, exercising, trying to do whatever I could. And this was just on your own or, again, to this point of, like, Pam, I mean, trying to find out all the information or not having oh, access to all the information. Right. I mean, how did you how did you come about all of that? Research. On I your own. Yeah, research yeah. on my own because my doctor was only telling me just this. The other doctor was only saying, you know, the mastectomy. Um, and so it was really up to myself. And during those three weeks that I was trying to do more research, now I was trying to look for something more on the alternative side, but there's so much information out there you just don't know where to trust and, you know, right. what's correct. And so I went ahead with the lumpectomy. Um, I did that. And then right before, and then my, my um, so they gave me some time to recover. And then I was scheduled for port 
in, I think it was July. So my operation was, my surgery was in April, and my port placement was to happen at the beginning of July, and then my treatments were supposed to start right after that. So I was set to do, you know, radiation and chemotherapy. But during that time that I was recovering, I happened to meet this woman. She was my age. She had been diagnosed a year prior, and um, she told me about this treatment. And it was a treatment that my doctors didn't know about. They actually were pretty much against me doing them. Well, my one doctor didn't find out. The one that did actually the lumpectomy didn't find out until a year later Hmm. that I hadn't gone through chemotherapy, and so he was really mad at me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was that, you know, like, they can't share information with you because they haven't really experienced it. And they're doing, you know, what they know is best, but it might not necessarily be the only option for you. Right. So I'm interested, too. Let's just talk. I want to talk culturally to these two. In terms of your community, I mean, you guys said you didn't really have cancer in your families. But once you have a diagnosis, in terms of, you know, I mean, I suppose it's like any family you kind of rally around or there's some within a, a Latino community. Well, or I just want to comment because we did a show on testicular cancer. We had um, um, a uh, African American gen- gentleman on the show, and he talked about how in the, the there's a masculinity issue with testicular cancer in disparity groups and ethnic groups, where in the Latin American communities you're cons- it's a homosexual disease perception to get testicular cancer as a man. And is there anything similar to that? Are there any parallels? that you, you know about or could face? Because I think it's really important for people to know that, A, that's stupid, and, and, B, there's no need for it. And what can we do to sort of reverse those stigmas? I, I can say for myself, I, I, I don't know necessarily, like, it it wasn't meant in a bad way, but I think sometimes, especially with a, a big Christian background, people think you did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, you yeah. may... you. You, there's a sin you didn't confess, or you're being punished for something. Yeah. You, you know, maybe you're not really living your life the right way, and this is where your your test or your punishment's coming from. So, um, it, you know, they don't mean it in a bad way, mm-hmm. but it's just that stigma. Like, how come you you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't do anything, yet you get cancer, and not just cancer, you get stage four cancer. Right. So. I know that there was that stigma because a lot of people, I'm sure, definitely doubted my integrity as a person hmm. because they're like, you must have done something. God has given you, this to you. God yeah, has chosen you. You must have something hidden in your life that you're wow. not telling us because yeah. for you to, to get all of this. Wow. But, I mean, as far as support, I think it's hard. I have an older family. My mother's from a family of 14. My father's from a family of 11. Wow. So there's a lot of family, as yeah. you can guess. Um and I, I just don't think anyone really got it until the second time around that this was serious. And it's sad to say, but I think the first time with cancer was like, okay, it's serious. But a lot of people are getting cancer. Even though you're young, a lot of people are getting cancer. Right. When it came back, I think now everyone's, like, looking at me like, okay, we really need to come together now. Like, we need to truly get our mindset right like there's there's a battle she's going through my immediate family was always a hundred percent right there but i think for the others they didn't start getting it or start researching or feeling the need to research it until it came back it came back in your bone is that right breast and bone the other breast and bone the other breast and bone congratulations yeah how long ago was that (laughs) (laughs) three and a half years ago so i'm still i'm still an active um cancer fighter yeah and um, keep going going but you know, you do what you got to do. Absolutely. 
You're absolutely amazing. <laughs> and yes. Yes, you are. And I'm glad that you spoke to the, those misperceptions because it's the same with the African-American community as well. And I think a lot of those misperceptions that, you know, I did something to deserve this cancer or, you know, it's, it's a punishment from God or God will take care of, of, of my uh, my destiny here certainly holds patients back from um, being aggressive and, and proactive about getting a prompt treatment. And so uh, it's, it's a barrier that I think as a people we have to move beyond. I did want to um, just comment on Komen's recommendations for um, screening, if that's okay. Just yeah, if- actually we were going to wrap up in about five minutes, and I wanted to address the breast self-awareness campaigns and discuss screenings which is always, it, it's with the early act, it generated some controversy. I'm in favor of it. I think you guys are sure. I think it's great. Um, but the idea of clinical breast exams under 40 and how young women can be proactive in the face of, you know, these uh, the, these significant uh, challenges based on age and race. Yes, yes absolutely. So while, um, while breast self-exams is certainly an option for women in in their in their twenties, uh, beginning in their twenties and thirties, uh, it, it's important to for women to to embrace their breast health and become aware of what is normal to them. So Coleman recommends a clinical breast exam at least every three years, beginning at age twenty through age thirty-nine, and every year beginning beginning at age 40. They also recommend mammography every year beginning at age 40. And certainly if you're at higher risk for breast cancer, you may need to be screened earlier and more frequently than other women. So it's important to speak with your doctor um, about your family history of breast cancer. As a nurse, I personally endorse um, breast self-exams just because of the multitude of patients that I have met who has told us stories about, you know, they're the ones who found their lumps um, while doing their breast self-exam. And I think this is important for younger women in general because you don't fall within that typical screening um, age of mammography. So you do play a role in your in your own breast health, okay? And um, just to offer um, some warning signs uh, for, for women in general to be aware of. In embracing your breast, you definitely get to know your breast um, much better than anyone else. Some women's breasts are naturally lumpy. I know um, women of, of color may have what you call like fibrocystic breasts, which definitely tends to be lumpy. While the most common sign of breast cancer is a painless lump, um, a hard knot, it may feel like a, a frozen pea, that's not the only sign of breast cancer. So it's important to just inspect your breast, uh, look for any abnormal changes in the shape of the breast, uh, in the color, certainly in the size. Uh, is one breast uh, significantly larger than the other? Pay attention to any of these changes, uh, any swelling, uh, thickening, certainly any darkening of the breast um, should be concerning to you, uh, any rash. Um, make sure that you also squeeze your nipples um, when you do your breast self-exam. And uh, if you notice any discharge that's abnormal, any bleeding, yeah. Be sure to to get this checked out. This is something that should be concerning to you. Um, even while, if, sorry, I was gonna, sorry to interrupt you. I just because even if some doctors tell you it's just hormonal, or again, like Pam's doctor said, it's just a cyst. My my lump was very soft. You know, okay. they thought it was a cyst. So yes, 
Absolutely, because breast cancer can appear in 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 very non-traditional ways. It it doesn't necessarily always just have to be um, a lump uh, or you know a, a cyst. So you definitely need to just pay attention to any abnormal changes um, that may occur. And so just be proactive and put your health in your own hands. You know, if you go to one doctor and that doctor is not meeting your needs and addressing your concerns, be sure to seek a second opinion because you are the one um, who's responsible for your health in the end. You're a paying customer. <laughs> Absolutely. You yeah, are a paying yeah. customer. Well, we've actually run over time, which is an, an indication that the show has really been useful and informative. So we can't thank you enough, Tarsha, for being a part of it, and our guests here, Milet and Pamela as well, for sharing their stories. It's my pleasure. Milet, any final comments? Uh, and Say in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I can't work like that under pressure. Um, <laughs> no, I just want to main, mention quickly that, um, or so actually, yes, I want to mention quickly that I did find my own, I found my lump. And six months prior to that, I was asking my gynecologist about doing um, a, a mammogram because I thought it was supposed to happen in your 30s. Right. And so, lo, lo and behold, you know, six months later, it was cancer. Right. So, yeah, just keep touching your boobs. <laughs> <laughs> Embrace right. your girls. I know I will. Yeah. <laughs> Fill your boobs right. or someone else will. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, that's right, and a partner could find them, as in my case as well. Right, so. and Marsha oh, Stein's yeah. partner. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, this has been a great show. This is exactly what we were hoping to accomplish, and uh, hopefully we'll spread the word a little bit. Tarsha, you're amazing. Good luck on the uh, the science, nursing science degree. The Dr. Thank nurse, you. Dr. Nurse, <laughs> the Dr. Tarsha. nurse Tarsha. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You both are incredible. Thank All right. You. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks so much, Tarsha. All right. All right. Bye. Tarsha Jones, Dr. Nurse Tarsha Jones. Pam Cromwell and Milet Lopez. Yes, Pam Cromwell and Milet Lopez. Did I lose sound again? There we go. Yay. Yay. All right. Well, that is the show, and uh, now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so... To all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, everybody, that is tonight's show, number 239. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Special thanks to our in-studio, Kenny Kane, Matt Beckett, Tamin Kim, Barbara Musser, Tarsha White-Jones, Pam Cromwell, and Milet Lopez. Next week's show, we are back with the Komen Multicultural Council talking about breast cancer in Asian American and Native American women with Linda Burhan-Stepanoff, and I hope I got that right. She is of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, founder of the Native American Cancer Research Corporation, and Twyla Garcia, breast cancer survivor, Rosebud Sioux Nation. I also just found out we will be having guests from AsianBreastHealth.org. Fabulous. Okay, if you missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.org or check out the archives anytime at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Lisa Bernhard, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday. 7 p.m. At 7 p.m., our new time. Good night, everybody. Hey, yo, we got to raise awareness. It's for this we strive. Because not every cancer survivor is over 65. We're all veterans of a battle, and the bulk of us more. In this war, too many soldiers are serving multiple tours. So...